Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. In last week's pod, in our conversation with Tom Baldwin, we tried to unravel the complex relationship between the digital revolution and contemporary democracy. This week, we shift to the equally complex relationship between economics and today's democratic crisis. Our guest is Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator for the Financial Times newspaper and one of the world's most acclaimed financial journalists. What I most like about Wolf is that he is able to explain incredibly complex things with breathtaking simplicity, such as the relationship between economic globalization and the rise of populism. Martin Wolf, chief economics commentator of the Financial Times newspaper. Martin, is democracy in crisis? Yes. I think that it's a crisis of legitimacy in the sense that the people feel that their governments don't work well, their politicians are ineffective, and that's the first crisis. And then the symptom of that is they go for non-political leadership of two types, the charismatic individual who is essentially anti-democratic, whose whole appeal is he will ride roughshod over these democratic niceties like the rule of law on the one hand, and more or less the same sort of thing on the other side, ideological fanatics of various kinds. Historically, they've been on the left, but they can also be on the right, and sometimes the two come together. But so far, what we're seeing is that in this rejection of the legitimacy of government, they go either to the charismatic individual, Donald Trump, or the ideological alternative, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Martin, you're an economist who likes writing about politics. So what's the role of economics, particularly globalization, in today's crisis of democracy? I think that's an absolutely fundamental question. I've always felt, by the way, partly because of my background and my education, that uh, politics and economics are twins. The idea that you can consider the economy without paying attention to politics strikes me as incredibly naive. My answer to your question, what role did globalization play? I think one has to divide it into two, in two ways, two completely different ways. First of all, what did it do in reality as opposed to how is it perceived? 
And there's no doubt at all that people are aware of and sensitive to the impact of things foreigners do or the presence of foreigners, often out of proportion to their actual economic significance, because we are tribal. The globalization, and I'm here thinking about trade, I'm thinking about migration, which is a form of globalization, is perceived as having a much greater impact on people than it really does, but that's to be expected because of who we are. The second way of cutting this is by the different aspects of globalization. So there's trade, there's the movement of capital, there's the movement of people, and there's the movement of ideas. These are related, but they are different. I think the evidence, to my mind, is just quite surprising, probably, is that trade itself, it's had a significant but actually fairly modest impact on our economies. People have exaggerated this hugely. For example, the American politics has recently been blaming imports from China for the loss of American jobs in factories. Actually, if you go back and look at the statistics carefully, you discover it's a fairly modest effect compared to other things. So that's trade. Capital is a very big deal because it has created a lot of macroeconomic instability, financial crisis, and so forth. And also, there's no doubt that the fact that the know-how has gone out into the world, that the know-how of Western companies is now available worldwide, has spread knowledge and made competition globally much fiercer. Migration is very totemic, but economically really quite insignificant. It's not a huge effect, but it's culturally quite significant. And then there's finally the globalization of ideas, a lot of which is associated with capital, but not just with capital. And of course, that is a very profound effect on our societies. We've lost our monopoly of knowledge, but there's nothing we can do about it. Ideas will move. There's nothing at all to be done about it. So in thinking about analytically what globalization has done, one has to be very rigorous and very careful. Martin, what about the role of global elites in this crisis? You move in the world of Davos, the world of think tanks and international authorities like yourself. Is Davos man the problem or the solution to today's crisis of democracy? Well, probably, well, I hope both, not just the problem. I've made this point before. I've clearly made mistakes in which I was too optimistic about how the new global market economy would operate and insufficiently aware of the dangers. And I think that was very generally true among economists and among advocates of the global economic paradigm, the liberalization paradigm. So I think intellectually, we got quite a bit wrong. And worse, I think it is, to my mind, clearly true for many of us that we paid too little attention to the interests involved, that we were inevitably creating a paradigm in which very powerful economic interests became increasingly unshackled from constraint. And that allowed them to play a political role, which was, I think, in significant measure malign. It allowed them to escape from their public responsibilities. Obvious example of that is all the tax evasion and avoidance that has been going on. And I think that 
people who were close to the idea of liberalization, economic liberalization, didn't pay enough attention to these downsides. And I recognize this as very much a mistake that people like me have made. We didn't pay enough attention to the political consequences of what we've been doing, which doesn't mean there's simple solutions, because I don't think there are simple solutions. And I don't think myself that globalization was a huge mistake, because it actually did allow for astonishing improvements in economic welfare across the world. But we didn't think about what this would do to our economics, our economies and our politics. And I'm very frightened about that. What would you make of the arguments of Brexiteers, Trump, and even unabashed illiberals like Bolsonaro and Erdogan? They're clearly global reactions. In the case of Erdogan, less obvious, except that he got into power in the first place because of the complete failure of the secular elites before him. In the other cases, it's obvious they are reactions. Whether they're corrections depends on what happens now. That they represent a kind of democratic correction to all the great problems of global 21st century capitalism. Yeah, exactly. They're democratic reactions. Whether they turn out to be corrections depends on what happens now. But are they democratic? So in some of these cases, I think it's pretty obvious in Erdogan's case, it's very, very unlikely a democratic process will remove him. In other words, what happens, it's the famous line, you have one man, one vote once. One man, one vote once is democratic, but it ceases to be democratic afterwards. To be a democracy, politics has to be competitive forever. That's what makes a democracy. So it's only a correction if what happens now is politics continues to function. And if they fail, and I think these people will fail, they can be got rid of democratically. On that, we don't know. I'm reasonably optimistic that if Mr. Trump loses popularity, he can be voted out in America. So that's democracy. In the case of Brexit, of course, it's a one-off decision, and it can't be easily corrected if it happens. So that's the nature of the decision. But ultimately, whether these reactions turn into corrections depends on whether the democratic game continues to survive. And I think my worry which is, of course, linked to what happened in the interwar period in Europe. My worry is that in some cases, democracy is just gone. I think Hungary is another example. I think democracy is just gone. There is no way under the present constitutional legal arrangements that anyone will unseat Viktor Orban. And the same is true, of course, with Putin in Russia. So if the autocrat gets sufficiently entrenched, democracy is over. What's the famous line of Mark Twain? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So I think this history clearly rhymes. And many scholars have written excellent books, much more expert than me. People like Timothy Snyder and Werner Muller have written wonderful books on the way in which what is happening now rhymes with what happened in the 20s and 30s. What we are not seeing is the rise, revival of the organized mass militaristic party. So we are not seeing anything like the Nazi movement or Mussolini's fascists in their black shirts. These huge private armies have not emerged in the West. The democratic forms continue to be obeyed. There's far more freedom in all these Western societies with more authoritarian movements than before. So in that sense, it's very, very different. But we are seeing the rise of nationalism, xenophobia, populism, 
hostility to judges and the rule of law, hostilities to the media, even when the media is doing its job properly. Mr. Trump's arguments about the press being liars is very similar to Hitler's Lügenpresse. So, as I said, what's going on rhymes with the past, but it's not the same thing. And so far, certainly it's not as dangerous. What, of course, exists today that didn't exist in the 1930s is the digital revolution, the internet, artificial intelligence, ubiquitous social media, and all its discontents. How do you see the role of all this new technology in today's crisis of democracy? I think that's a really profound question, and I'm not completely sure I have made up my own mind. I think there are two ways of seeing this. The first, which is my optimistic picture, if you like to think of it as optimistic, that using the newspapers, pamphlets, the radio, it was amazing how well they seemed to be able to control public opinion, for example, in Nazi Germany. Didn't require modern technology. Hitler won anyway, got to power anyway. He was electorally remarkably successful after the Great Depression without any of this modern technology. And it's clear that the lie machine was very, very effective throughout the whole history of Nazi Germany to the very end. So it didn't require modern technology. In that sense, the modern technology is not a necessary condition for this. So that's the optimistic view. If you like, things can go badly wrong with the old technology. Well, that's not really optimistic, but actually it means that the new technology is not that important. But I think there is a counter-argument, which is that the manipulation of public opinion with modern technology is much easier and more invisible. It's below the radar. That's what seems to me so striking about the interventions in the recent elections, particularly in the US, but also in Brexit, using instruments like Facebook and so forth. And of course, not only is that the case, that they can manipulate more effectively because it's more targeted, more personal, cheaper. But of course, if all this technology gets into the hands of the state, they can, in theory, manage individuals and oversee individuals, have surveillance of society down to the individual, which those dictators of the past couldn't dream of. So you have to worry that if such a regime comes into power, it just can't be got rid of. It's there forever. So in that case, if that is the case, then these new technologies are sufficiently new to make the nightmares of the 20th century the realities of the 21st. Martin, you use the word if as if it might happen in the future. But isn't this kind of high-tech authoritarianism already being imposed in China? It's not quite clear to me how far it's effectively happened, but there's no doubt at all it's what they're trying to make happen. I think the Chinese Communist Party would be very, very strong in China even if it didn't have all these technologies. So I'm not saying that it's powerful because of it. The truth is that since the Tiananmen incident, as they call it, the Communist Party of China has been remarkably astute. It has managed the economy and the polity really effectively all the way down. And I would have thought that probably continues to have an overwhelming legitimacy anyway. So it doesn't need all this. But yes, it is absolutely clear 
that they are operating an increasingly pervasive surveillance system as more and more people go online. And the result is that it is difficult to see how anybody could mobilize effectively against them. That doesn't mean it's over. If you think about how a regime like that ends, think how the Soviet Union ended. It didn't end because of an upwelling of protest from below. It always ends because the regime splits at the top. And the surveillance system will not itself prevent that. What happened in the Soviet Union in the 80s is the Communist Party of the Soviet Union split profoundly. That seems unlikely to happen now in China. But if China's development stops, if things start getting really difficult for whatever reason, I think that could happen. And that's why I think that even with this very strong surveillance system over the citizenry, the regime is not necessarily permanently consolidated. But the history will see whether that's right. I'm a little troubled, Martin, by your comment about the legitimacy of this authoritarian Chinese government. Are you suggesting that most Chinese citizens don't want democracy? Well, that's what I'm always told. Of course, I haven't spoken to most Chinese people. The Chinese leadership will, of course, always tell you that they'd much rather have stability and prosperity, the democracy of which they have no experience, no real idea. It is clear they found, and Xi Jinping himself recognized this, the corruption of the bureaucrats they were dealing with intolerable, and that was very dangerous to the state. So I'm not suggesting at all that they found the regime fully satisfactory and legitimate. All I'm suggesting is that it doesn't seem to me implausible, but I can't prove it because I haven't talked to 1.3 billion Chinese, and there's no opinion polls on this in China for obvious reasons. If you think about where China was in the 1970s, which is within the living memory of many Chinese people, in terms of its the way people lived, both politically and economically, the transformation has been so profound. And in fact, the freedoms they enjoy in all dimensions are so much greater that it is not implausible to me that for most Chinese people, this regime provided prosperity, its pride, stability, and reasonable degree of personal freedoms of various kinds to study and so forth, that this regime is reasonably legitimate. Is that true? I don't know. Will it be true forever as the economy slows, as the economy ages, as people get more educated, more exposed to ideas? I don't know. But it seems to me plausible that the Chinese regime is reasonably well consolidated at the moment, also in the regard of its people. But I can't guarantee it, and I'm certainly not promising that that will stay the same. Okay, so we can't control the Chinese government, but we can control our own political systems. Give me a couple of solutions, concrete things that we can do to solve this crisis of democracy. Well, the most concrete thing which applies, I think, most to the U.S. is to reimpose or impose for the first time really tight restrictions on the use of money in politics. If politics are for sale in this way, then I think we are in terrible trouble. Aren't you sounding a bit like Donald Trump now? Clean the swamp? Uh, well, except that I mean it. <laughs> and he and his party sure don't. Second, I think 
I have become increasingly tempted by the Australian idea that voting should be compulsory. There's far too much effort made, particularly in the US, and far too many cases when people will not vote. And the people who don't vote tend to be the poorer, the less attached to the political process. But these are precisely the people who've actually for whom the vote is most significant. So I think there's a very strong case for making voting compulsory. Third, I think, and this is where it gets complicated, there has to be public financing. And I think there are ways of doing this of political parties. So they have the means, even without private funding, because they perform a public role. A political party is providing a public good. It makes a political system work. Now, this has to be done without ideological support, without ideological attachment. It could be done in terms of how many votes they get, that you give them a certain proportion of public money. In Britain, of course, you have the advantage still, but that's diminishing advantage. You can use the BBC and the media as a compulsory way of providing channels for parties to get their messages. But parties have to be helped to get their messages in Germany. Parties are given support to do think tanks, to do research on policy and so forth. So support for political parties will be my third element. Martin, without wishing to pigeonhole you, but my guess that politically you're on the centre-left. I think of myself as anywhere in between the centre-right and the centre-left, and it wobbles over the my life. In America, at least, you wobble to the left. Oh, yes. In America, I will be centre-left. But in Britain, I'm probably centre-right, actually. So how do we reinvent our centre-left? Clearly, nobody believes in triangulating moderates like Clinton or Blair anymore. My sense is that the traditional European centre-left of the industrial age is in retreat. Yes. So is a reactionary socialist like Corbyn the inevitable outcome of the crisis of the centre-left? Or can a credible, moderate, progressive ideology be rebuilt in the age of global capitalism? I think politically, that is to me possibly the biggest single question within the sort of general systems we're talking about. The answer to this is, I don't know. I have actually a friend, Paul Collier, who's written a very, very interesting book called The Future of Capitalism, which I think has lots of radical ideas. My answer to that is, I believe you can be radically left of center, significantly more egalitarian than the old third way was, while still being strongly pro-market, significantly more interventionist in the economy. I mentioned some very important areas, competition policy, demonopolization, and all the rest of it, taking on tax evasion, all the rest of it, while still being center-left. And But there are some things that the centre-left is attached to, which I regret this, where I think they're going to have to be much stronger. And one of them is they have to make clear, while we are not xenophobic, we are committed to controlling the borders and including over-migration. I wrote this 15 years ago. It was a great mistake in the US not to let in immigrants, but basically allow in so many undocumented people. I mean, if you lose control of the borders, there will be a backlash. And so for the centre-left, I think Paul is right on this. It's one of those really difficult issues, but I think it's one they have to take on. But so what what I'm saying is you can be pro-market, but you have to be much more egalitarian, much more interventionist, much more pro-competition, much more determined to remove money from politics. And that is a form of centre-leftism, which I believe could still be popular. And it's certainly the sort of centre-leftism that I would support. Are we going to need a charismatic leftist, a kind of Macron, even though even Macron is a Macron anymore, a kind of Fabian Churchill? 
politics always needs charismatic. Charisma is part of politics. And why should the charismatic politicians only be demagogues, populists and fascists? So where is this progressive charismatic going to come from? Really successful politicians always come from surprising places. So while we can debate his contribution, two years before he emerged, nobody expected Barack Obama to emerge from absolutely nowhere. These people will come from wherever they come from. They may be youngsters whom we haven't heard of. I didn't expect Jeremy Corbyn. Nobody thought about suddenly the most significant charismatic politician in Britain. One always has to hope that in countries with vibrant political traditions, real political leaders will emerge when there is a need, and God knows there's a need. So Martin, you began pessimistically, but you've ended on an optimistic note. I've ended hopeful, which is not quite the same thing. Despair is a sin. You are listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show, and this interview is with Martin Wolf. Stick around as Andrew will be back after a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is Optimism and Courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. We are expecting 1,200 attendees from around the world and 180 international speakers. To see who is coming to DLD Munich, visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview with Martin Wolf. Despair, Martin Wolf tells us, is a sin. And yet there's a lot of pessimism in his analysis of democracy's global health. My worry is that in some cases, democracy is just gone, he tells us. Those cases include Hungary, Russia, and China. These are places, he warns, that the autocrat has become so entrenched that democracy is over. I fear that Wolf is right when he warns that contemporary autocrats like Viktor Orban in Hungary are unseatable. So what to do? As the child of Jewish refugees who fled the Nazis, Wolf is particularly passionate about saving democracy from the xenophobes. But rather than getting preoccupied with the rather hopeless task of resurrecting democracy in Russia or Hungary, Wolf is focused on strengthening Western democracy. History rhymes, he quotes Mark Twain. And the situation today in the West, he warns, chillingly rhymes with the situation in the 1930s. As an economist, what most interests Wolf 
is the intricate relationship between capitalism and democracy. While he argues that globalized trade has had a much less destructive impact on our economies than the populist claim, he nonetheless acknowledges that perceptions matter, particularly political perceptions about the global economy. So Wolf is right to insist that we must reform capitalism to make it appear more inclusive and less openly biased in favour of the new global elite. He even acknowledges his own failure to recognise the radically divisive consequences of globalization. If only other Davos men were this self-critical. But politics matters too, of course, he reminds us. And the major political crisis today is that of the legitimacy of both the institutions and the ideology of democracy. And his two major fixes for this are both intriguing. Taking private money out of politics and making voting compulsory. What Wolf is trying to reclaim for democracy is a vibrant public sphere. He's draining the swamp, and this can only be done by ensuring that it's public rather than private money which finances political parties. So, where are we going to get the political leaders who will lead us out of the swamp? We need both responsible and charismatic leadership, Wolf insists, who can compete with irresponsible populists like Trump and Corbyn. Barack Obama is his model, somebody who came from absolutely nowhere to capture the imagination of a majority of the electorate. But Wolf is too much of a realist to believe that there's another Obama waiting in the wings. Today's challenge is mixing social egalitarianism and pro-market economics with political interventionalism, he says. But this won't be easy. Today's biggest single question, he says, is how to reinvent a moderately progressive ideology in the age of global capitalism. And that's going to take a lot more than just another yes-we-can media-savvy politician like Barack Obama. Next week, we go to Estonia to learn how this tiny Baltic Republic is reinventing democracy in the digital age. Guests include Estonia's former chief technology officer and the architect of the country's unique e-residency program. I look forward to talking with you then.